0: I want to welcome those of you that are here today over in the venue, and thank you, Chad, for leading worship over there, along with Stephen and Ben and Stephanie, man, just a great, great team over there, and may you hear from the Lord, uh, all of you. Um, one of our sisters in the Lord sat right down here most of the time uh, is with Jesus right now. We're, we're, we're singing about Jesus and we're, we're giving offerings to Jesus, and we're preaching about Jesus, but one of our sisters, Alice Atwood, is actually with Jesus, and uh, just an incredible gal, and I know Charlene was a good friend of hers, and yesterday she went to be with the Lord. Not sure when the funeral's going to be, but as soon as we know, we'll try to let you know, just check in the, in the paper, she was a, a great saint of, of, of Christ. And uh, if you know the family or whatever, please be praying for them during these difficult moments. Uh, Tomorrow, about 90 of us, uh, 91 of us or whatever it is, we're uh, taking off for Israel. And uh, Pastor Gordon Rumble has put together an incredible trip. He's done a lot of heavy lifting. I'm excited about it. Many of you are going. There's a number of our pastors that are going and our elders who are going, and we're going to have a great time. Now, here's the deal. We want to let you know what's happening. And so if you go to our website, that's kind of what it looks like. That's the face of our website. And you click on the little Israeli flag. It says BBG Israel trip. And it's a blog. And every day, starting today, we will put pictures on there and, and video on there. And we'll post some things. And we'll show you Lee and Sandy Anderson uh, when I push them into the Sea of Galilee off of the boat. Because, by the way, a lot of your friends have paid me to do that. I've got a whole pile of money, and you'll get a picture of him, and uh, we're going to have a great time there. And we want to share it with you. And so make sure throughout the week, go there every day, and just see some of the different photos and some of the the different things. We have two buses going, and lots of us will be teaching. There's just lots of really good people who are going, who have been to Israel a lot, and we're just going to have a... Uh, a fantastic uh, time, and so we just want to be able to share that uh, with you. Well, I I want everybody to to think about this. The first Christians who ever lived back in the first century didn't have cars, which means they didn't have bumpers, which means they didn't have a place to put Christian stickers on. (laughs) like, you know, a Bible verse or the, or the name of the church that you go to or some fancy, you know, catchphrase, Turner burn or whatever. <laughs> they didn't have any witness wear. There wasn't any Christian T-shirts or Christian hats or, you know, Christian jewelry or whatever. They, they, they didn't have radio stations that played Christian music. They didn't have any superstar pastors with TV programs or radio programs or podcasts or whatever. They didn't have any celebrity pitchmen making Christianity the vogue religion of the day. Or star athletes like Tim Tebow who were making Christianity cool. They didn't have gospel tracts. Now this is going to shock some of you. You know, they didn't actually have the four spiritual laws back then. What? didn't have any of that. They didn't have the Gideons putting Bibles in hotel rooms. They didn't have church buildings like we're enjoying here today. Yet amazingly, every day, not, not every month or every week, but every single day, people, unbelievers, were giving their lives to Jesus. The Bible says in Acts chapter 10, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers Now, how did they do that? They didn't have any bumpers. No Christian T-shirts. No TV programs, spiritual laws, no Gideons. No buildings like this. No Tim Tebow's. How in the world did these first century believers reach people every single day with the message of of Jesus Christ. Well, today, Peter's gonna give us a pretty good idea on on how they did it. And it's the same way that you here today in the 21st century can reach your friends. A little bit ago, we, we stopped and we paused even over in the venue and had you think about someone, maybe a family member, a friend who doesn't know the Lord, maybe somebody you work with, maybe... You know, somebody in your neighborhood or something. And we wanted you to lock in that that person. Maybe it's the, the guy who cuts your lawn. Maybe it's your mailman. Maybe it's the guy that picks up your garbage. Maybe it's the person who does your toes or does your fingers. Maybe it's the person who cuts your hair. Man, in the world we live in today, God actually brings people right to our house. You know, the guy that cleans our pool. Mows our lawn, trims our trees, squirts our, our, our bugs. All the time, God brings these people into our lives who don't know Him. And we had to think about them. We had to pray for them. It's God's will that nobody would perish apart from Him. That's God's will. And he wants to use us, Christian, to somehow reach them and, and touch them. And here we see the first century church that had none of the stuff that we have today, and yet they were reaching people every single day. And the neat thing is, is that in our text, we're going to see how we can do it here today. If you're visiting with us, we're in a in a series called Standing Strong, where we're going through the, the book of First Peter together. And today we're going to look at First Peter chapter three, verses. 13 through 18, okay? So if you have a Bible, you can turn there or the, the, all of the verses or most of the verses are in your notes inside your program or they'll be on the jumbo trams. okay? The Bible says, who will want to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it's better to suffer for doing good, if that is what God wants, than to suffer for for doing wrong. I see here, I guess, a blueprint for us on how we might be able to reach the people in our life who don't know the Lord. And let me just say this quickly. My guess is, is that there were some of you in here and some of you over in the venue who, um, when Pastor Scott or whoever it was over in the venue asked you to think about somebody who was, who was lost, you couldn't think of anybody. And I want you to know that's tragic, that somehow your life is just about Christians. You know, you you come to church and you got all your Christian friends and you go to your small group and they're all Christians and you you get together with your Christian buddies and, you know, play golf or tennis and and you get together with your Christian friends to do whatever it is you do and, you know, you only milk, you know, drink milk from a Christian cow and, I mean, your whole life is just wrapped around Christians. And, And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. I have a lot of Christian friends. My best friends are believers, but how tragic is it that that you've gotten your life to a degree that you're not even interfacing with someone who doesn't know the Lord, that that really being salt and light doesn't mean anything. It's like like God gave you this incredible light and you've just put a, a bucket over it. God wants us to have great Christian friends and all of that. Talked about that last week if you were here the church. Us, we ought to be a safe people. We also ought to be out there trying to figure out how we can touch the lives of others. And I think Peter gives us a, a, a neat blueprint. Number one, you reach people when you have a passion for goodness. When you have a passion for goodness. Verse 13 says, who will want to harm you if you're eager to do good? Beloved, the, the word good here has to do with moral and spiritual excellence. It's the same word, by the way, that's used in Matthew chapter 1 to describe Joseph, the, Mar- uh, the, the husband of Mary. Matthew chapter 1, verse 19 says this: Joseph, Mary's fiance, was a good man. He was a man of moral excellence. He was a man of spiritual excellence, which, in my humble opinion, is one of the reasons why God chose Mary to bear his son. You see, God knew how special Joseph was. God knew that Joseph had a passion for goodness, that he was a moral man. He was a spiritual man. God knew that his son Jesus would be raised in a good home by a good man, a a moral man, a, a spiritual man. In other words, one of the things that attracted God to choose Mary was the fact that Joseph was a good man. Mary wasn't the only virgin in the region. But when God chose her and said, you are going to be the one, the blessed one, who will bear my son, I believe one of the reasons he chose her was because of Joseph. Bet you never thought about that. He wanted his son to grow up in a good home, a godly home, a moral home. And part of that equation was, was Joseph. I, I, I think What attracted, one of the things that attracted God to Mary was Joseph. Beloved, there's something beautiful in there about, about a good person. There's something attractive about a good person. Aren't you drawn to good people? I mean, rarely is anybody really drawn to somebody who's evil, right? I mean, there's always those people you see on TV. In fact, I watched a program on it the other day. It freaked me out. There are these mass murderers, you know, and they're in prison. And you see these gals that, that are drawn to them. And they want to marry them. They want to hang out with them. And it's like, well, that's just freaky weird. Because most of us aren't drawn to evil, we're drawn to goodness. We like being around good people, moral people, don't we? In fact, think about it if you're married. One of the, the things that, that drew you to your spouse was was their goodness, their morality, right? I mean, you don't date somebody and go, oh, man, I, I met this fantastic gal, Oh, she's fantastic. Evil is all get out, but man, I'm telling you. <laughs> thinking about taking her out again, you know. What? No one does that. You're drawn to goodness, aren't you? Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says, So we keep praying for you, asking our God to enable you to live a, a life worthy of his calling, right? May he give you the power to accomplish all the good things your faith prompts you to do. You see, when you receive Jesus Christ into your life, not only did he come into your life and cleanse you of all of your sin. But the Holy Spirit now prompts you to do good things. Prompts you to live a a good life, a moral life, a life of spiritual excellence. Paul goes on to say in in chapter 3, as for the rest of you, dear brothers and sisters, never get tired of doing good. Don't get tired of it. Yeah, we live in a, a world that doesn't You know, like our moral stance, our ethical stance. It doesn't like what we stand for, but man, keep going. Because it matters when you're trying to reach the lost, which is the topic for today. Being good, living good, matters when you're trying to reach lost people. Jesus said, this in matthew chapter 5 he said let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father look you got an unsafe friend, family member, somebody you work with in your neighborhood, whatever, you know, the, the postman, the, the guy that comes and mows your lawn and, and you want to reach him with the gospel. Let me tell you something, living a good life, having a passion for goodness matters because somehow that says something about your God. Now, obviously, there's always going to be people out there who hate you and hate your message about Jesus, regardless of how good you are. Jesus was, was good, but there were still people who hated him. But having a passion for, for goodness matters. People are drawn to it. So the first thing you've got to do if you want to reach your lost friends, family members, or whoever, is you've got to have a passion for goodness. N- number two. You reach people when you have a passion for goodness, even if you suffer for being good. Verse 14 says, but even if you suffer for doing what is right, God's going to reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. One version says, even if you suffer for doing good, you're blessed. Beloved, don't ever compromise your walk with God. Don't ever do that, ever. Ever. Even if people are crummy to you, no matter what's happening in your life, no matter how you're suffering, don't compromise what you believe in. Why? Why is this so important? Well, let me give you two reasons. Number one, Peter says when you suffer for being good, you're blessed. You're blessed by God. Peter says when you suffer for being good, God will reward you. Anybody like to get a reward from from God? I do. Bible just told you how to get one. My son, who's in third grade, read that. He gets it. You can receive a reward from God, a blessing from God, when you have a passion for being good, even if you suffer along the way for it. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5. He says, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right. He blesses those who are persecuted when they have a passion for being good. For the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you're one of my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Listen, friend. All of the the great prophets in the Old Testament, they all suffered. The original 12 disciples all suffered. You're in good hands, good company, if you will, when you suffer. A lot of people have gone before us who have suffered. There's a blessing that waits for those who, who, who suffer because of their passion to be good, to live a moral life, a spiritual excellent life, if you will. Now, the second reason you need a passion for goodness is this. Not only is there a reward waiting for you if you suffer for doing good, having a moral compass, if you will, but you need to remember that the people you're trying to reach with the message of Jesus are watching you. Remember, that's what our topic is today. How do you reach someone? You reach them when you have a passion for goodness, and you reach them when you have a passion for goodness, even if you're suffering. Because people are watching you. The people you work with, they know you're a believer. They know you go to Big Valley Grace. The people, you know, your family members, you know, your uncle, your aunt, your grandma, your grandpa, your grandchildren, whatever, they know you go to church. And they're watching you. And when life gives you a kidney punch, when you suffer, for whatever reason, they're watching to see how you're going to respond. Are you going to respond in a moral way, in a a spiritual way, in a a good way? How how do you respond? Because how you respond says something about the God that you believe in. And when you respond with goodness... That, that means something to the lost. When, when crummy things are said about you or, or, or I don't know, it, it, you can broaden it out and, and, and something crummy happens. They find a lump where there's not supposed to be a lump, right? You lose your job. You lose your business. Whatever. The lost are watching They're going to watch and see how you respond to this, to see if this God that you come and worship, this God that you give to, this God that you serve, is that God making any difference in their life? Because they're suffering just like you in different ways, maybe. And so you really reach people when you have a passion for goodness and you have a passion for goodness, even if if you suffer for it. Because there's, there's something beautiful. There's something attractive when you see somebody who's just living out a good life, even when things are crummy. You're, you're, you're drawn to that. It's almost like you know this light that we have in us. If you go out on your back patio at, at, during the summer and it's at night and you turn on your, your light, what happens? It draws what? Bugs. Bugs are attracted to it, aren't they? I think the lost are attracted to our light when we have this passion for goodness. Number three. You reach people when you give God center stage of your life. Verse 15 says, who want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of your threats. And then verse 15 says, instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. A lot of your Bibles say, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Now, what do I mean by, by center stage? I picked this because I was watching this program on the U.S. tennis Uh, uh, U.S. Open tennis championships that they play in, in Flushing Meadows back in New York. Well, this complex is unbelievable. And they use about 40 different tennis courts during the U.S. Open. But there's only one center court. That's the holy grail in the tennis world is to be on the center court at the U.S. Open. That's where everybody wants to be. It, it is sacred. And I think that in our lives, we have a lot of courts, if you will. And God doesn't want to play on you know, court two or court three or court five. He wants to be in the center court, if you will, the center stage of your life. Look, as believers, I know God is a part of our lives. I know it. The issue is, is he central in your life? Because if you want to reach the lost, God can't be on court four. God can't even be on court two. You've got to have God right there. He's the one who I worship. He, there he is. For a lot of believers, obviously, maybe Sunday mornings or Saturday night, I put God on the center court. Now, Come Friday night, he's not on the center court. He's on a court. He's in your life. He'll never leave you or forsake you, but he's no longer center court. And guess what happens as it relates to our topic? Your unsaved friends, your unsaved family members, those neighbors of yours, They see that. It was one of the things that used to kind of blow me away when I was a student down at Davis High School right down the road here. I knew a lot of guys that were believers. They went to church, they were Christians, and even invited me to church. There were times I'd even go. But, But Friday night, you know, after the football game, these believers, God was no longer center court. He was in their life. He was on court two or five or eight or twenty or whatever it was. But God wasn't center court anymore. Because they were doing the same illegal things I was doing. They were involved in the same cruddy things I was involved in. So here I was, a lost soul, and I'd look at them and just go, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. You want to reach your friends with this incredible message of Jesus Christ. That their sins could be forgiven and that their relationship with God could be restored and that God has this amazing life for them. You have a passion for goodness. You have a passion for goodness even if you suffer for being good. And you keep God in the center stage of your life. Now look, none of us are going to keep God at the center stage of our life all the time. We've got our flesh and the old man, the old nature, the Adamic nature, whatever. And we've got the demons and we've got to fight all this stuff. And one of the beautiful things about church, one of the beautiful things about your small group, one of the beautiful things about Celebrate Recovery or whatever, is this is a time when the Holy Spirit can go, oh, I'm not center stage anymore in your life. And God begins to get you back on the center court. You go to your small group and maybe, you know, I don't know, the, the Lord's still in your life. He never leaves you, but he's on court four now. And it's there that maybe you're encouraged to say, oh, man, I need to put God right back there. I need to put him on the center court. Come down here on Tuesday night to celebrate recovery, and this is a place where people are saying, God, I want you center court of my life. If I keep you there, the chances are probably pretty slim I'm going to do the dumb things I, keep doing. I um, want to tell you about three young guys um, who gave God center stage of their lives. Some of you know them. Their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were basically told that they had to worship some other God, that they had to put some other God in the center stage of their lives. And it says this about them in Daniel chapter 3. It says, but there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the golden statue that you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the golden statue that I've set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you refuse to take God from the center stage of your life and put my God there, You will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God in whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, even if we suffer, in other words, we will never serve your gods or worship the golden statue that you have set up. It doesn't matter what happens to us. We're gonna keep God center stage of our lives. Beloved, not only do these guys have a passion for goodness, not only do they have a passion for goodness even if they were gonna suffer for being good, but they also had a passion to keep God center of their lives. These guys didn't care whether God spared them from death or not. They had made God the center of their lives, and they weren't going to let anything or anybody remove God from that sacred place. And it is a sacred place, isn't it? And when you live like this, I guarantee you that great things are going to happen. Now also, in Daniel, we read about Daniel. In fact, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6, you can do that. I think it might be in your notes. But you really get to see what happens when you, as a follower of God, make a decision to to live these three things out. A passion for goodness, a passion for goodness, even if you suffer and putting God in the center stage of your life. Look look at verse 1. Fascinating story. Most of you know it, but probably some of you have never heard it. Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces and he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. The king also chose Daniel and two other administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interests. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all other administrators and high officers because of Daniel's great ability. In other words, he had a passion for goodness. The king made plans to place him over the entire empire. Then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government, the government affairs, but they couldn't find anything to criticize or contemn. Why? Because he had a passion for goodness. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. So they concluded, our only chance of finding grounds for accusation for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. So the administrators and the high officers went to the king, and they said, long live King Darius. We are all in agreement, we administrators, officials, high officials, advisors, and governors, that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions And now, your majesty, issue and sign this law so that it cannot be changed. So King Darius signed the law. Verse 10 says, but when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, what did he do? He had a passion for goodness. Passion for goodness, whether, you know, he suffered for it. He had God in the center stage of his life. It says this, he went home and he knelt down as usual in his upstairs room. With its windows open towards Jerusalem, he prayed three times a day, just as he has always done, giving thanks to God. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asked for God's help, asking for God's help. So they went straight to the king and reminded him about his law. They told the king, that man, Daniel, one of the captains from Judea, is ignoring you and your law. He still prays to his God three times a day. Well, of course he does. He has a passion for goodness. He has a passion for goodness, whether he suffers for it. And he's got God on the center stage of his life. Hearing this, the king was deeply troubled, and he tried to think of of a way to save Daniel. He spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. In the evening, the men went together to the king and said, your majesty, you know that according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, no law that the king signs can be changed So at last the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. The king said to him, may your God whom you serve so faithfully rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed uh, the, the stone with his own royal seal and the seals of his nobles so that no one could rescue Daniel. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night fasting. He refused his usual entertainment and couldn't sleep all that night, very early the next morning, the king got up and hurried out to the lion's den, and when he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was, you know, your, your, your God able to save you? Was he able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, long live the king. My God has sent his angels to shut the lions' mouths so that they would not hurt me, for I have been found innocent in his sight. And I have not wronged you, your majesty. And the reason why he hadn't wronged him was because he had a passion for goodness, absolutely. The king was overjoyed, and he ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. And not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in his God. Then the king gave orders to arrest the men who had maliciously accused Daniel. He had them thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. The lions leapt on them and tore them apart before they even hit the floor of the den. Now here comes the the result of having a passion for goodness and giving God center stage of your life. Look, I read all that to get to this. Then King Darius sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people and performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions Beloved, when you have a passion for goodness, when you have a passion for goodness, even if you're going to suffer for it, and you've got God as the center stage of your life, it's amazing what will happen. You read this story, and it ends with the the king saying, man, your God's unbelievable. In fact, I'm going to let everybody know how unbelievable your God is. Beloved, you're no different than Daniel. It's amazing what happens when you just say, I'm going to live a good life, a moral life, a life of spiritual excellence. And I'm going to live that good life regardless of what happens to me, and I'm just going to keep God in the center stage of my life. And when I see him shifting to number two or three, I'm going to do all that I can. I'm going to repent of my sin, and I'm going to keep him right there unbelievable what what can take place now not only does the name of God get lifted up when you're committed to living out these three things but the chances are pretty good that people are gonna be interested in what you believe which brings us to number four number four is this you reach people when you know what you believe okay whoo you live a good life that's fantastic people are drawn to that you live a good life even if you suffer for it that's a good thing Man, your light's shining bright. You've got God on the center stage of your life. That's good. Your light's shining. And now God brings somebody to your life. Can you tell them what you believe in? Do you know what you'd say? You see, those first three are every bit as critical as number four. In fact, you hardly ever get to number four if you're not doing the first three. But you got to know what you believe. Verse 15 says, and if someone asks you about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. One version says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have within you. Beloved, do you know what you believe? Could you explain to somebody why God is in the center stage of your life? If you're getting your toes done or your fingers done or they're cutting your hair and they're, you know, coloring your hair and somebody said to you, you know, I hear you go to Big Valley Grace, why? Well, tell me about it. If all of a sudden your your grandchild were to, were to ask you, hey, Grandpa, hey, Grandma, why, why do you go to church? what, what, what? what? If somebody you went to school with, you know, in your math class or your English class said, hey, I know you go to youth group or you go to church down there. I, well, tell me, what do you what do you, what do you believe? Would, would you know? I know for a lot of you, the answer is no. You couldn't explain to anybody what you believe in. And that's not good. But here's the... Here's what I want to challenge you with. I want you to reach inside your program and I want you to pull that little sheet of paper out. It looks like this. Okay? Sharing Jesus with confidence. Next Saturday, first Saturday, everything is basically shut down. You know, there's no discovery class. There's no shape class because a lot of us are, are gone next Saturday. But Pastor Jeff Pishney from nine to noon in the fireside room, which is right over here, is going to, t- a three-hour class on how you can, share your hope and then obviously in three hours you're not going to learn everything but you're going to at least have a couple of thoughts you'll be able to share maybe your testimony a little bit you need to take advantage of this over in the venue you need to take advantage of this you see I, I think it's okay not to know how to share your faith but what's not okay is that you don't get trained if you don't know I'm not here to beat you up. I'm just here to say, look, take advantage of this. Your church wants to equip you a little bit. So set aside a few hours, come down here. You'll you'll be nervous, you'll be scared, but here's the deal. At least when you leave, you'll go, okay, I've got a couple of handles on how I can share my hope. Peter, you know, doesn't say, always be ready to have some snappy rebuttal for every philosophical argument that's tossed at you. He doesn't say, always have, you know, 15 verses ready to quote if somebody asks you what you believe in. He just simply says, be ready to tell somebody about the hope that you have within you. Your hope. Your hope. I was talking to a a gal a couple of weeks ago, and she came into the Welcome Center, and she said, hey, I asked her how she heard about Big Valley Grace, and she said, well, I'm a single mother, and I have a young, a young son. And I, there's a friend of mine who goes to your church, and she's also a single mother, and she also has a couple of young children. And one day we were talking, and I said, look, my husband just left me, and my, my son is devastated. And I don't know how to, how to be a, a mom and a, a full-time mom and a full-time dad and a, a, a full, have a full-time job and I, I, I'm just overwhelmed and, and I, just, I just don't know how I'm going to make it. And this Christian mother simply said, man, I know how you feel. My husband left me too. And it's difficult to try to be a full-time mom and a full-time dad and a full-time employee and all those things. But here's the deal, I know that God loves me. And I know that God loves my kids. And I'm just trusting that somehow God is gonna get me and my children through these difficult years. All she did was share her hope. All of a sudden that gal, hmm, hmm, comes to church and was about three weeks ago, she gave her life to Jesus Christ all because One single mom didn't share any verses with her. Didn't share some great doctrinal, you know, uh, thesis of the end times. Just simply shared her hope. And in this case, it was, man, I know God cares about me. And I know he cares about my my child. And I'm just trusting that he's going to get me through all this. Wow. Just that alone made a difference in this one gal's life. You, 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 need to, you need to take advantage of, of this, this class. It'll really help you. But let me give you another important reason you ought to know what you believe in. You need to know what you believe in because when suffering comes, when persecutions comes, you know, when crummy times come, if you don't know what you believe in, you, you, you'll, you'll just be toast. Paul says something very interesting in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. For we are are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor, and then it lists a number of pieces, and you get to verse 17, and it says this. Put on salvation as your helmet. Beloved, Paul is writing to Christians here. In other words, he's writing to people who already know the Lord. So Paul isn't telling these Christians that when a spiritual battle begins, you know, to, to, to rage, that you somehow need to get saved. The helmet of salvation has nothing to do with getting saved. He's writing to Christians. They're already saved. So, what's he talking about? What's he getting at? Well, one of the the great strategies of the devil is to attack the Christian's security. To attack the Christian's assurance. So he throws these darts of doubt and discouragement at us. He he reminds us of our failures, our faults, our, our sins, our hang ups. He he tries to help us lose confidence in our salvation. And the helmet simply protects the heads of the soldiers. And so Paul is saying that we as Christians need to protect our minds from the lies of the enemy. In other words, we as Christians need to make sure that we understand our salvation. Because if we don't, the enemy can come and attack us and make us feel like we're not saved anymore. Oftentimes in the altar room, people go in and they say, I've fallen away, God, you know, I, I, I need to receive Christ. And we find out that they've received Christ years ago. But somehow, all of the doubt and all of the confusion and, you know, they're reminded of all of their sin and the junk and the credit in their lives, they don't feel saved anymore. I think one of the great reasons why you need to know what you believe in is so that when those arrows of doubt come, when all of those things are thrown at you, you don't get tripped up. Look, there are times I wake up in the morning... And I don't feel saved. Maybe I had a bad night, kicked the dog and, you know, didn't love the way I was supposed to love and didn't care the way I was supposed to care and didn't show mercy the way God wants me to show mercy. And, you know, and I have those times that I wake up and go, man, you know, really? God, you really love me? And guess what? Because I know what I believe, because I know the truth, guess what? Those arrows of doubt, those arrows of discouragement, you know, Satan reminded me of all my junk and all my sin and all my crud, doesn't get to me because I know the truth. So let me quickly give you three aspects of your salvation, and I'm just going to run through these real quick. Number one is justification. This has to do with the past. This is freedom from the penalty of sin. And this happened at the moment you gave your life to Christ. At the moment you gave your life to Christ, Jesus comes in, cleanses you of your sin, and and you've been justified. This, no longer does the penalty of sin impact you. Separation from God. You and the Father have been made right. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, so now there's no condemnation for those of us who belong to Christ Jesus. Listen to me. If you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, there's no condemnation. None. If that decision that you made was genuine and you truly accepted Christ into your life, you've been justified. You and the Father now have a relationship and that can't be taken from you, ever. The second aspect of, of, uh, of uh, salvation is sanctification. This has to do with the present. This is freedom from the power of sin. Now that you know God, now that God's Holy Spirit indwells you, you have the power to say no to sin. You have the power to live a God-honoring life. You have the power to live a moral life. You have that power today. And the third aspect of our salvation is glorification. This has to do with the future. This is freedom from the very presence of sin. One day, you know, we're going to be in heaven. There's not going to be any sin. So these are the three aspects of salvation. This is putting on the helmet of salvation, if you will. Understand justification. No more will you experience the penalty of your sin. Sanctification. You now have the power not to sin. And glorification. Someday you're going to be away from the presence of sin. And so when those arrows of doubt come and you feel like, I don't know, really does God care about me? I'm such a loser. You you, you got that helmet on. You know what you believe. Because it's the truth that sets us free. Not how we feel. But I know how we can feel. I have feelings too. And it's important not only that you can share your hope with others, but it's important for you too that you understand your salvation. The last one, and I'm not even going to talk about it, is this. You reach people when you, when you, when you keep a clear conscience. When you keep your conscience clear. And that has to do with spending a lot of time with the Lord, just in confession of sin, repentance of sin. When, listen to me. When you know you're off base, when you know you're not following the Lord, when, when you know that you're living in sin, let me tell you something. You want to reach lo- the lost, you've got to repent of that. And all repentance is is, is this. man. I, I'm, I'm looking at sin, I'm living in sin, I'm just doing the opposite of, of God. And you turn, and now you face the Lord again. And let me tell you something, that's a beautiful face to look at. That's the face of love. And when you're living in sin, your conscience is all goofed up, don't think you're ever going to be used by God. But when you repent and you turn and face Jesus, wow, that's a good place to be. Let's say these five things out out loud together. Okay, if you want to reach someone for the lost... Number one, I reach people when I have a passion for goodness. Number two, I reach people when I have a passion for goodness, even if I suffer for being good. Number three, I reach people when I give God center stage of my life. Number four, I reach people when I know what I believe. And number five, I reach people when I keep my conscience clear. Now I want you to stand up, okay? Everybody stand up. Over in the venue, I want you to stand. And I just want you to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to think back to that person earlier. That unsaved person in your life, your your relative, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's somebody you go to school with, maybe it's your grandma, your grandpa. Maybe it's the person that cuts, colors your hair, mows your lawn, cleans your pool. God wants you to care about that person. God wants you to somehow reach that person with this incredible message of hope. Jesus Christ. Beloved, you take, you take those things I just kind of shared. I guarantee you. I guarantee you incredible things will happen. I guarantee it. But if you're here and maybe over in the venue and you're looking at that and you're saying, you know what, I don't have a passion for goodness. My conscience isn't clear. We have a place called the altar room and the spiritual leaders of our church will be there to pray for you give you some wisdom, give you some counsel. Take advantage of it. Maybe you're here and there's just something else going on in your life. Maybe you're just broken over the fact that you've lost a loved one. Go in there let us pray for you. Maybe you're struggling in your marriage. Go, let us pray. Maybe it's a health issue. Take advantage of this moment and allow the Lord to to work in your life. Men, don't forget that conference coming up. It's a conference like that that helps keep God in the center of your life. Mark your calendars. Buy a ticket or six. Invite a few of your buddies. Scott, would you close our time in prayer, my friend?